0: The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give give. Reading from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 14. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Frank's, my name is Chad Middlebrooks, I'm one of the other pastors here on staff. And as we continue this fourth Sunday in Advent, we do so looking at the first chapter of the book of Hebrews as we have been in over the last several weeks. And we've been doing so with a desire to answer this very crucial question. What child is this whose birth we celebrate? And over the last three weeks, we've seen how the writer of Hebrews brings the person and work of Jesus Christ into intimate connection with God the Father. And so far we've learned that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. He's also the royal son. And last week we saw that he's the king of angels. And this morning, as we just heard read in our passage, it reveals that this child, Jesus, is also the eternal ruler. And so with that, let's pray, let's ask the Spirit to come and do what only the Spirit can do, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might receive these glorious riches of His truth and be transformed by them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we began this worship service by lighting the candle of love. But Lord, as we have gathered this morning, we know that your word tells us that you are a God who is abounding in love, steadfast love, unconditional love. And yet for some of us, maybe many of us, looking at our circumstances, we feel anything but loved this morning. And so we ask now as we come to your word that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would comfort us by the healing balm of your gospel yet again this morning so that we might receive it believe it and be changed by it we ask that you would do this for our good and for the sake of your glory in Christ's matchless name we pray amen well a few of you may remember years and years ago the story of a woman in New Mexico who was frying tortillas in her house and noticed the skillet burns on one particular tortilla that looked just like the face of Jesus And she showed her family and her friends and her neighbors and she took the tortilla in hand to her priest to bless this tortilla. She told people and testified that her life was changed because of this tortilla with the face of Jesus on it. And she kept it in a glass jar in her house and people over time from all over the country came to her home to visit and to see this tortilla that had the face of Jesus on it. Well, in April of 2011 at Posh Pizza in Brisbane, Australia, a pizza maker was making a three cheese pizza and put it into the pizza oven. And as it came out on the other side, she discovered that it looked like it had the face of Jesus on it. And the owner said that this pizza brought blessing to her this day because, as she attributed to this Jesus pizza, as it became known. Now, we can laugh at these stories, but to be mistaken about the identity of the person of Jesus Christ has very serious consequences. Each person must answer the very question that Jesus himself posed to his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? And how we answer that question and what we believe about Jesus has eternal consequences. So who is this one that came in a lowly estate, born in a manger in a posture of full dependence upon his earthly parents? Well, as we'll see in this text, Jesus is the creator, greater than his creation. He's also the eternal one, greater than all that is impermanent. And Jesus, this one born in a manger, is also the enemy defeater, greater than the angels he sends to serve his beloved children now as the writer of Hebrews has done as we've seen of the last nine verses of the last few weeks he uses the old testament scriptures to prove the identity of Jesus Christ and in verse 10 this is no different as the writer quotes from Psalm 102 when he writes you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands Now a little context for Psalm 102, it's a lament of an individual who's going through very difficult trials and struggles. And the psalmist laments the fleeting nature of man as he says, For my days pass like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. There's recognition of man's mortality because of sin and the alienation from man to God. And so the psalmist, his soul is weighed down in sorrow and downcast and feeling hopeless. But then there's a turning point in Psalm 102 when the psalmist lifts his eyes to the Lord and finds hope and encouragement. In verse 12, he says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. In weakness, desperation, The psalmist considers the eternality, the power, the unchanging nature of God. These words describe Almighty God. But here's the remarkable thing, folks. The writer of Hebrews applies these very words from Psalm 102 to Jesus Christ. God the Father is speaking to the Son here. It's as if we, the church, get to listen in in the heavenly places of the father talking to his beloved child, his son. And in this declaration, the work of creation is ascribed to Jesus Christ with all the implications of divinity that accompany it. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see that Jesus is called the creator. The Apostle Paul tells us this, and he writes his letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This past summer, our family went out to Grand Teton Mountains and Yellowstone National Park and it was our, our, my kids' first time being out there. I actually worked in Yellowstone in college for a summer. And so we spent time in the park enjoying the beauty and just the uniqueness that is there, especially in Yellowstone, which is boasts some two million acres of land and some 10,000 hydrothermal features of geysers and mud pots and hot springs and fumaroles, and not to mention all the wildlife and the The plants and the animals and everything that is there within the park and as we're going through the park we're all noticing all the beauty that is there and we couldn't help but think and even also say aloud at many times God created all this isn't this amazing look at God's creativity and whether you've been to Yellowstone or the Teton Mountains we've all seen in creation things that we've beheld with our eyes that have brought us to a sense of awe and maybe speechlessness or maybe even to tears. But the awesome, and as awesome and glorious as these things are, the writer of Hebrews is telling us here that Jesus is far greater than anything that our eyes have or will ever behold in creation. Christ was present with the Father and with the Spirit when creation was spoken into existence and since he is creator he has full rights to do with his creation what he wills because he has all authority over his creation and so therefore there's no place on this earth that you and I can go or no circumstance that we will face that Jesus does not have authority over. And just like with the psalmist in Psalm 102, that should bring us great encouragement this morning and great hope and trust in Christ who will sustain us throughout everything that we will face in this life. And in light of Jesus being the creator of all things, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verses 11 and 12 to reveal this contrast, this stark contrast between Jesus, the son of God, and his creation that he has authority over. And he continues to quote from Psalm 102, which brings us to our next point. We learn that Jesus is the eternal one. He's greater than all that is impermanent. Scripture reveals that everything in creation, no matter how grand, no matter how spectacular it is, will come to an end and will wear out. Quoting from verse 26 of Psalm 102, the writer says, they, creation, will perish, but you, God, will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will all be changed. Even the works of our hands are fleeting and temporal along with all of creation. No matter how great the achievements we make in this life, they will be forgotten. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Christ in an instant, he says, will roll it up like a robe and exchange it for a new garment. Christ is eternal. He remains. The writer of Psalm 102 recognizes that death is inevitable for every human being. He says that we will wither like grass, but Christ, the eternal one, has no beginning and no end. While yes, the Son took on flesh in time and in space, his divine nature has always existed and Christ will always exist going into the future. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not bound by time like we are in our finiteness. And as Peter says two verses earlier from what I just read, he says, and with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a 1,000 years is as one day. See, in fact, God sees past, present, and future as an eternal now as it happens once, all at once at his perspective, unlike the way that we view and relate to time. And so what makes Jesus so remarkable in coming and taking on flesh and to humble himself into an earthly body is that he subjected himself to the realities of time in order to carry out salvation, and accomplish it for sinners like you and me. And so therefore, through faith in the one who is eternal, we receive salvation that is eternal and secure because Christ has authority over all things. Christ is eternal, but not only that, not only does he outlast his creation, he also doesn't change in his character. Father says of the Son in verse 12, you are the same. And your years will have no end. Now, as my family and I drove through the park in Yellowstone, we had a, a, an app on, on our phone that would kind of track our GPS location. And so it would give us facts and, and history about the park as we went into the various uh, features there. Whether it was talking about the fires of 1988 that burned some 800,000 acres in the park. Or the precise time that Old Faithful Geyser would erupt or the patterns of all the animals throughout the park, one thing was sure that we heard over and over again, change. Yellowstone National Park is ever changing. And are you and I not the same? We are also constantly changing. This creation that God made is ever changing. We change our viewpoints, our opinions, our preferences. We change our tastes for music and for food and for fashion. Our relationships change, our jobs change, our emotions and our reactions are quite unpredictable as they change depending on the situation and as we grow older our bodies change, we have more aches and pains and our minds lose their sharpness as they change and even our faith from day to day can wax and wane. Now, typically when we think of someone not changing, we don't necessarily see that as a good thing and as virtuous. Because we've all dealt with people that you think, well, they're just stubborn. They're just stuck in their ways. They're not gonna change. But Jesus, just like his father, who is perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, justice, goodness, mercy, and truth, we desperately need and should want a God who does not change. We want a God who doesn't change his mind or go back and renege on his promises to us. We need a savior who doesn't vacillate in his affections and his love for his people. I mean, think about the implications of a God who changes his mind. You can never trust what he was asking of you to do because you would never know where you stand. We would not want a God who is unstable that we could not trust. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that God is the same yesterday today and forevermore and James writes in James 1 every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change everything about God is trustworthy And because he's the one who is perfect in his being, we can trust every word that he's given us here in his scriptures. And we can trust every promise that he's made to us. We can always turn to him in confidence since he will never change. No matter what sin we're coming to him with, no matter how many times we're coming back to that same sin, asking for forgiveness. Because he's made promises to us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And His unchangeable character and all powerful nature, that is our hope. That is our foundation for our faith. Christ, the eternal, unchanging, superior one, can be trusted with our lives. Now, it's easy, though, for us to assent and to say, yes, I trust that He's God, and yes, He's eternal. But then the rubber meets the road when we're called to actually put that trust into action in daily circumstances, right? Do our daily lives, do they reflect trust in the one who not only commands our trust, but who is worthy of our trust? Do we trust him with the details of our lives? Do we trust him with our children's lives? Do we trust him with our marriage, with our bodies, with our finances, and everything else, If Jesus is greater than all that is impermanent, then why would we rely on anyone else but him? To trust Christ is to see him as our only hope in this life and in the life to come. It's finding him to be our soul's chief delight. It's our point of living. He's our hope in dying. And he's our goal in everything that we think, say, and do. To trust Christ is to treasure Him above all else and to find our soul's satisfaction in Him alone. And just as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the one who trusts in the Lord, the Lord pronounces a blessing on him. He says, The man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. This morning, is Christ your trust? Is He your greatest treasure? If not, might we repent of our disordered affections and disordered loves and desires? We must rely on the Spirit to ground our trust in the one who does not change and who's superior over all creation. And this one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul says in Colossians 2, he stepped into human history as our king having finished the necessary work that you and I left undone because of our sin, Christ now reigns in heaven as the rightful king. And this brings us to the last point. We learn that Jesus is the enemy defeater, greater than even the angels that he sends to serve his people. In verses 13 and 14, the writer of Hebrews shifts from quoting from Psalm 102 to now quoting from Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And this psalm describes where Christ, the Messiah, went where he departed this earth and went in glory and what he's actually doing now, currently. And continuing to prove that Jesus is far more superior than even the angels, he quotes from verse 1 in Psalm 110, where God the Father, speaking to the Davidic king, says these words, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus, who is the greater king from the line of David, is the one who is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And this posture of sitting signifies a place of honor, a place of dignity, a place of blessing. And just like earthly kings who would rule and sit on their throne, it was a position of rank and of power and of authority over their kingdom. But Jesus is different than every other earthly king who has come or who will ever come. Because as we see, John described the glimpse that he gets in Revelation seven of this king, Jesus, sitting on his throne and every tribe, tongue, and nation is around that throne crying in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on his throne and to the lamb. Now when we think of a king seated on his throne, maybe perhaps we think of a, a spoiled privileged individual Who is lounging in the luxury of a castle, living the good life, while all of his servants work their fingers to the bone and labors for him. That's not the kind of king any human heart longs for, especially us as Americans, right? We want a leader who's going to roll up their sleeves and get to work with us. We don't want one who's going to be aloof from his people. We want one who's going to engage and to come down and dwell and be with his people, Do not mistake Jesus' posture of being seated to think that he is inactive or he's disengaged. And for some of us this morning, we are feeling just that. Yes, I believe he's God and maybe he's king, but he is not in tune with the details of my life and what I'm walking through right now. Jesus is intimately engaged in his creation as the great shepherd king of his sheep. And the posture of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, it assumes that Jesus has accomplished everything for salvation. There is nothing left to be done. It's why he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. And as we saw a few weeks ago in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, Jesus made purification for sins. And after making purifications for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, just as the psalmist in Psalm 102 lamented man's mortality, Christ, in coming in human flesh, knows these sentiments all too well. As he was afflicted, as he poured out lament before his father, Father, if there's any other way for this to happen, may it be so. Not my will, but your will. See, Jesus in his humanity knew what it was like to have his days cut short and to die a young death. He knew what it was like to be despised by men, to be abandoned by his friends. He died as a criminal on a cross. And scripture tells us it was precisely because he humbled himself to the humiliation of the cross that the father lifted him up in glory, calling him the victorious king. And that phrase, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, it refers to victorious generals who would place their foot on the neck of, of their enemies that they defeated to show power, superiority, and to ridicule. Well, who are Jesus's enemies? Well, his enemies are the the curse of the law, sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And in Jesus's earthly ministry, he came in order to bring newness of life and to advance his kingdom against his enemies that's why he healed the sick that's why he cast out demons why he opposed the proud and exposed false teaching and hypocrisy that's why he drew sinners who were enemies of his to repentance and faith becoming friends, brothers and sisters the goal of all Christ does is to to subdue his enemies and to protect his church for the glory of his name And as Westminster Shorter Catechism 26 tells us how Christ executes his office of a king, tells us this answer, that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us, his people, to himself and in ruling and defending us and restraining his and all of our enemies. Jesus possesses all power and authority over his church and he rules her and defends her from all of her enemies. Which means as the enemy defeater, that Christ's kingdom will reign forever and not one thing can stop it or defeat it not even the gates of hell the fact that Christ sits enthroned as the exalted king also reveals this grand promise to us that even though we still face enemies today in various shapes and various forms we have absolutely nothing to fear Because as John Calvin writes, he says the promise that Christ shall never be thrust from his seat takes away from us every fear we may have for he will lay prostrate his enemies. Our security and our hope lies in the one who is seated on his throne and who will one day come to judge his and our enemies once and for all. And the writer after showing Jesus is superior to the angels since he is seated in a place of honor and authority next to the father he explains what the role of the angels is verse 14 he says are they angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation you've ever been in someone's home or maybe you've been to a dinner And you sit down in a seat and immediately you notice something's off, whether someone actually tells you or you just look at the facial expressions of others and you realize I'm in the wrong seat. I'm in someone else's seat. And so you get up and move and then when that person comes in, whether it's the father at the house or whether it's the CEO and they sit down and you say, yep, that's what it was. The angels, as it were, are standing in heaven telling one another, make sure no one sits in this seat because no angel has ever been addressed like Jesus is addressed. Nor has any angel ever known the honor and the dignity either by right or by gift to sit at the right hand of the Father. The Son sits as the sovereign one. The angels stand as servants. And one Martin Luther scholar notes that for Luther, Christmas celebrates God deep in the flesh, as he says. So great was God's longing for his creature's redemption that God's preference for human nature over angelic nature might even provoke the angels to jealousy. Christ is at work on our behalf sending his angels to tend to us in ways that we will never fully know and never comprehend. There are spiritual realities going on every day that we can't even see. understand war being waged and Christ sends out his ministering spirits in his own power to minister to you and I you may remember the story of John Patton who was uh, sent to the South Pacific in the 17th century and he and his wife go to minister to cannibals And one night they are in their house and they begin to hear this commotion outside of their house and the villagers come and they surround the home and they're loud and making all kinds of ruckus and they found themselves fearing that, okay, they're coming to kill us and probably eat us. And so John and his wife just laid down on their knees, began to pray and all night they prayed and prayed and cried out to God. And they could hear in between their prayers the loud cries of people with chants and they were just waiting for any moment for them to come in on them. Well, the next morning came and it was quiet and they go outside of their hut and realize no one is there. And then about a year later, Patton was meeting with the chief of the tribe who had been converted. And he said, can I ask you a question? He said, that night about a year ago when all of your The the tribe came and were surrounding us. We knew that you had come to kill us, but why did you not come in? And the chief of the tribe responded and said, let me ask you a question. Who were all those men surrounding your home? Hundreds of men with swords drawn. We have no clue how God sends his angels to foil the attacks of the enemy on us each and every day of our lives. There are stories untold and told that we can read about this God sends his angels to protect his people and as Kent Hughes notes Christ's cosmic superiority prophetic superiority priestly superiority and angelic superiority are all at the believer's service in a world that's falling apart what child is this he's the majestic all-powerful eternal creator and king and if he is all these things and more which he is how can we not give him our very lives in complete surrender and dependence what need do we have both in this life and in the life to come that Jesus is not the answer World Magazine commentator Steve West reminded me this past week of Rosie Thomas's rendition of the 1958 classic Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas don't be late If you remember the song, it begins from a child's perspective who's longing for Christmas to come because he wants to get a plane that does a loop-de-loop and wants to get a hula-hoop. But Thomas, in her rendition, she adds a few more verses to kind of broaden the perspective to speak of the greater longing that we have. And she sings these words. She says, Christmas time is near, time to look back on the year. Please bring joy to mom and dad. Help my brother, he's been sad. Comfort those who need a friend. Fill their hearts with happiness again. May they know that He came for them. Oh, Christmas, where you been? There's a longing deep inside of every one of our hearts—a longing for things to be different, a longing for things to change, a longing for things to heal. A longing that this time when we gather with family, there will not be conflict or wounds resurfaced. A longing for peace. Would we know that this Jesus came for us? This child in a manger, he came for the mom and dad who feel the weight of their failures. This child came for the one whose diagnosis is not good. This child came for the son of the daughter who want mom and dad to stop fighting. Want them to be reconciled. This child came for the one who's full of doubt anxiety, depression. This child came for those who want their sins and the failures of their past and the guilt and the shame that they're weighed down by to know it's dealt with. This Jesus, he came so that he might provide us with everything that we need and to make good on every promise that he's made. There's nothing that we have faced or will face, that Jesus is not the answer. This child who came in a manger does not change. And so his promise to return again and to set all things right to the day where there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more diagnosis of cancer or any other ailment is certain. So brothers and sisters, rest your weary souls in this hope and this truth both today and the days ahead let's pray Father forgive us when we are more astounded by what we see in creation than the one who has created it Father we thank you that you have come in time and in space that you have taken on the frailty of human flesh to submit yourself under this world full of sin and brokenness, and yet you have remained faithful to your Father. Father, what hope that brings us, even as we look at our circumstances and we see all that is left undone, we know that you're doing something about it. For you will come again and set all things right. And so Father, we ask that we would trust in the victory that you have gained for us and trust in all the resources, even your angels that you send on our behalf, that you are providing and protecting us until that day you return. We pray this all in Christ's matchless name, amen.